Welcome to Grace Point Church Podcast. We proclaim Christ crucified and uphold him as the only hope for the fallen world. Come back to our Gigi reading. This is Christ's call to discipleship. And today we are looking at chapter 8. That is, but is he with us? But is he with us? That is in page 101 up to 111. Now as we begin... James begins by quoting from Luke 9, 49 to 50. It says, Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Luke 9, 49 to 50. Again, quoting from Mark 9, 39 to 41, we read, No one who does a miracle in my name and in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Mark 9, 39-41 James begins, Years ago, I bought a car and I remember sitting in the salesman's office while the final papers were being signed. I was surprised at how many there were. One by one, they were all sorted out, and I signed whichever ones were necessary. A form for the dealer, forms for the state, documents authenticating the condition and mileage on the car, receipts for tax purposes. At last, the power was got through, and the salesman said, Now for the personal part. He was referring to my check for the purchase. When you talk about discipleship, as we have in this series of studies, we are talking about the personal part of Christianity. Christianity has doctrines which can be studied and discussed. It has history which can be analyzed, applauded, or deplored. It has buildings and ceremonies and organizations and budgets and leading spokespersons and other things besides. This can be understood and even participated in in a detached manner. But not discipleship. Discipleship is personal, which means that even a study of it must be personal. That is why we have looked at self-denial, personal obedience, service, humility, and traveling light with one's possessions. But although discipleship is personal, it is not personalistic. That means it also always involves our relationships to others who profess to be disciples. Begin with a subtopic here. But are they disciples? But are they disciples? But are they disciples? I, as I ask that question, I'm not referring to those people in the church who are essentially like us, you know, ethnically, denominationally, or in terms of our particular religious experience. We do not have trouble with those people because affirming them is really just affirming ourselves. When asked the question, but are they disciples? I am referring to people who claim to be disciples, but who are different from us. I am asking, how should we regard them? What should our relationship to these different disciples be? This question came up during the days of our Lord's earthly ministry and occasioned another of his important sayings. The disciples had been arguing about who should be the greatest, 
and Jesus had replied by an object lesson. He had taken a child and had placed the child before them, saying, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is the least among you he is the greatest, as you see in Luke 9, 48. The disciples did not always understand what Jesus was saying when he spoke like this. But on this occasion, John at least seemed to understand. He remembered an incident that had taken place not long before. He and the others had met a man who had been casting out demons in Jesus' name. He was not part of their company, so John and the others commanded the man to stop. Since Jesus had spoken of welcoming a little child and not offending him, John wondered if maybe he and the others had been guilty of doing that in the case of the independent disciple. He was not one of their number. He did not seem to have been authorized by Jesus. But had, had they done it had but had they done it right? John said, Master, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and you tried to stop him because he is not one of us. He was asking, We did right, didn't we? Jesus replied by a great statement concerning proper tolerance in religion. Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. You see in Luke nine, forty six to fifty. He was telling them that the exorcist did not have to be among their limited number or in their particular association to be a disciple. Continue now with another subtopic here. The problem explored. The problem explored. Before we draw conclusions as to what a Christian relationship to other professed believers should be, we need to examine that story carefully. One thing we need to see is that although in this case Jesus said, that the one who is not against us, that is, uh, not against him, is for us, it does not follow that there could never be a case or, you know, circumstance in which a mere professor could be opposed to Christ's kingdom. One warning that this possibility exists is found in what on the surface is a direct contradiction to Christ's teachings. In Luke 9.50, Jesus declares, Whoever is not against you is for you. But just two chapters later, in Luke 11, Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. These sentences uh, seem utterly opposed, yet both are true because they are speaking to different situations. In the second instance, Jesus was speaking of the believer's conflict with Satan, showing that in that struggle there can never be room for neutrality. Some who are present were claiming that Jesus was casting out demons by Satan's power. In the earlier instance, this was not the case. Novo Gordon Hughes says, It is a question of someone who believed in Jesus to such an extent that he cast out demons in his name and who revealed such a humble attitude that he allowed the disciples to forbid him to continue the work. In the incident, we are studying the exorcist not only did what he did in Christ's name, and therefore in open allegiance to Christ, he was also effective in what he did, for he was actually casting out demons. This indicates that his allegiance to Jesus was not in word only, but by saving faith. For it is only as one is joined to Jesus by such faith that Christ's power is seen in him. 
In other words, the man was a true believer in Jesus. His action was a proof of his profession. What was the disciples' problem then? The problem, as John stated, was that the man was not one of us. That is, he did not belong to the disciples' party. No matter, no matter that he professed faith in Christ, no matter that he was doing good works in Christ's name, he was not one of the disciples. Therefore, they did not, uh, they did what they could to stop him and to stop his ministry. I'm afraid we have become personal gain. We are talking about a disciple's relationship to other disciples and so have broadened the limited concerns of our chapters. But this nevertheless strikes home. Again and again, in church history, Christians have denounced and persecuted others for no better reason than is given here by John. He is not one of us. They tell others, you must follow us or not work for Christ at all. This is a devilish thing. For in extreme forms, it has actually destroyed the gospel. I give two historical instances. First, it was the era of Judaism at the time of the early expansion of the church. The church in Jerusalem had no problem with Gentiles becoming Christians so long as they became Jews, that is, so long as they became like those who had believed before them. But when the gospel expanded to Gentile communities, and the new covenants uh, began to practice their own forms of Christianity without reference to the laws and customs of Israel, a party developed that had as its goal the conforming of the Gentiles to Jewish practices. These people went to Galatia, among other places, and they were there taught that it was not enough to be a follower of Jesus. A person must be a follower of Moses too. It was not enough to have faith. A person must also be saved by works. There was no salvation outside Judaism. Into this arena stepped the Apostle Paul, aghast that anything should be added to faith as a condition of salvation. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, Paul argued. That is true even for Judaism. For all his advantages, even the Jew will be lost if he adds anything to the work of Christ for salvation. The second historical example is the Roman church of the Middle Ages. The medieval church was unorthodox in many respects. It upheld the doctrines of the Trinity, the divine human nature of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration and the authority of the Bible, and many other teachings. But something happened during those centuries. The Roman church spoke of salvation through the grace of God in Christ. But it came to think of impartation of grace as something belonging to the church and to be controlled by it. God displayed his grace in the sacraments, but the church administered the sacraments. So no one could be saved outside the Roman church. If you are to be saved, it had to be through baptism administered by the church, confirmation administered by the church, the Lord's Supper, that is the Mass, administered by the church, confession of sin to a minister of the church, followed by absolution, and eventually final unction administered by the church. Salvation was to be found nowhere else. So to be excommunicated by the church was to be severed from grace and also to perish eternally. 
Luther was God's man for this hour. Although the truth had already been declared by Savonora, the Florentine reformer, when he was condemned to torture and death in 1498, the authorities told Savonora, We excommunicate you from the church militant on earth and from the church triumph in heaven. But Savonarora replied, You may execute me from the church militant here, but you can never excommunicate me from the church triumphant. That was exactly what Luther later discovered and proclaimed so forcibly. He proclaimed that one is saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, that one does not have to be a member of the Catholic Church or any other visible church to be a Christian. Protestants are divided into many diverse camps, of course, so we are unlikely to make such extreme erroneous claims. But we have errors enough of our own. We prize our denominational traditions and are inclined to think that no real good can be done in the world unless it is done by persons from our own particular confessions. Bishop J.C. Rao wrote this, and I quote, Let us be on our guard against this feeling. It is only too near the surface of all our hearts. Let us study to realize that liberal, tolerant spirit which Jesus here recommends and be thankful for good works, wherever so and whomsoever done. Let us be aware of the slightest inclination to stop and check others merely because they do not choose to adopt our plans or walk by our side. We may think our fellow Christians mistaken in some points. We may fancy that more would be done for Christ if they would join us and if all worked in the same way. We may see many evils arising from religious dissensions and divisions. But all this must not prevent us rejoicing if the works of the devil are destroyed and souls are saved. Is your neighbor warring against Satan? Is he really trying to labor for Christ? This is the grand question. Better a thousand times that the work should be done by other hands than not to be done at all. Happy is he who knows something of the spirit of Moses when he said, Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets? And of Paul when he says, If Christ is preached, I rejoice. Yeah, I will rejoice. As you see in Numbers 11.29 and Philippians 1.18. Another subtopic here. Cause of dissension. Cause of dissension. I suppose that in the entire history of the church, there has never been a division, however unnecessary or sordid, that was not been justified by some persons on spiritual grounds. Yet if the truth be told, the great majority of diversions occur for base motives. This is what is taught in the incident involving the disciples' rebuke of the man who had been casting out demons. There were two base motives. In each account of these incidents, as we see in Mark 9:38-41 and Luke 9:49-50, John's question is immediately preceded by an account of the disciples arguing about who should be greatest and Jesus teaching them about the necessity, necessity of being a servant using the example of the ritual child. You see this in Mark 9, 32 37, Luke 9, 46 to 48. In other words, there is a connection between these two happenings that teach that the disciples' basic problem was their pride. They wanted to be important. They were even joking for possession among themselves. 
Hence the demonstration of success by one who was not even of their own number was abhorrent to them. Bishop Ra wrote, Of all creatures none has so little right to be proud as man, and of all men none ought to be so humble as the Christian. Yet pride is often present even among more serious Christians. The presence of this trait even among the disciples of Jesus should teach us that there is nothing against which we should be so much on guard. There was also a second base motive behind the uncharitable judgment passed on the man doing exorcism. To see this, we need to go back one more incident in Mark 9 and Luke 9 and remind ourselves that immediately before this, when Jesus had come down from the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, the company had met by a man who begged Jesus to cast a demon out of his son. He said, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You see that in Mark 9.18 and Luke 9.40. Here is a great irony. The disciples had failed to drive out an evil spirit. They should have humbled them and drawn them closer to Jesus to learn more about him and to draw more closely on his power. But he did not. Instead, we find them arguing about who should be the greatest and even rebuking another disciple for what they had failed to accomplish. The disciples were motivated by jealousy and filled with pride. Is it not the case that this is what actually prevents much proper cooperation and interaction among Christian groups today? We criticize another group's theology, but is it not true that we are often actually jealous of what they are accomplishing? We need to deal with this sin if we are to go forward effectively in Christ's service. One last subtopic here. One body, many gifts. One body, many gifts. There's only one way we will ever defeat an improper narrowness in our view of Christian work. And that is to recover a vision of the greatness of the church as Christ's body. We need to recover the truth Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians in his introduction to spiritual gifts. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God who works all of them in all men. See this in 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6. According to this and other passages, the church contains a variety of gifts, uh, styles, causes, and methods of ministry. The first one is a variety of gifts. A variety of gifts. The diversity in the church that the Bible talks most about is gifts, that is the capacities for service given to every true Christian for the benefit of the whole body. These are listed in five passages of the New Testament. We see this in Romans 12, 6 to 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10, 12 to 12, 28 to 30, Ephesians 4, 11, and 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11. The specific gifts vary in each passage, suggesting that the lists are not meant to be comprehensive, but rather suggestive of the kinds of capacities for service God gives the church. The gifts are listed as follows, and I list. First one is apostles, you see in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and Ephesians 4, 11. The second gift is prophets, you see this in Romans 12, 6. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and Ephesians 4, 11. 
We see service in Romans 12, 7, 1 Peter 4, 11. We see evangelist, Ephesians 4, 11. We see wisdom, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. We see knowledge, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. We see pastors, Ephesians 4, 11. We see teachers, Romans 12, 7, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Ephesians 4, 11. We see speaking, 1 Peter 4, 11. We see encouraging, Romans 12, verse 8. We see faith, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9. We see healing, 1 Corinthians 12, 9, verse 28. Working for miracles, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10 and 28. We see ability to distinguish between spirits, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10. We see contributing to others' needs, Romans 12, verse 8. We see helping others, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And showing mercy, Romans 12, verse 8. In other words, these are all the gifts we see. We see apostles, we see prophets, we see service, we see evangelists, wisdom, knowledge, pastors, teachers, speaking, encouraging, faith, healing, working of miracles, ability to distinguish between spirits, contributing to others' needs, helping others. We see administration, 1 Corinthians 12. 28, we see speaking in tongues, we see interpreting tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, 28, and verse 30. The mere listing of these gifts should encourage a measure of tolerance in Christian people. For it is evident that they are all quite different, that all and perhaps others are needed, and that none of us has more than a few gifts at best. The first one was a variety of gifts, the second one is a variety of styles. It is not just in the gifts that we see variety. We also see uh, it in the styles with which these gifts are exercised. In this area, the apostles themselves are an example. Each of these men was given the gift of apostleship, but each was extremely different in his exercise of the gift. Peter was an effective, dynamic spokesman who preached on Pentecost and many occasions thereafter. John was much more subdued. He traveled to Asia Minor, where he died years later, being revered as a gentle and a wise old man. Paul, who was called to join the ranks of the apostles later, was an aggressive evangelist. He would not always have been easy to live with. And we know that on one occasion, at least, he had a falling out with Barnabas, another apostle. Variety of styles frequently divides Christians today. But it does not need to do to. But it does not need to. I do not mean that we will always necessarily feel most at home with another's work style. To imply that would, that would be to deny the legitimacy of our own style. But I do mean that we should respect the other's approach to service. We should not use words like superficial, overly emotional, cold, shallow, dry, or introverted to describe them. The third one is a variety of causes. Many varied causes compete for a Christian's loyalty. But varied as each may be, no one Christian can be actively involved in all of them. The fight against abortion on demand can be not be every Christian cause. The fight for equal access in the public schools cannot command all of every Christian's time. Neither can the inerrancy cause or the battle to renew the mainline denominations or any one of the large number of other things. If this is so, we must not be critical of others 
who are involved in Christ's work, but who are just not involved in the particular cause that concerns us. Above all, we must not expect them to stop what they are doing and come over to a particular movement. The other one is a variety of methods. When I wrote of a variety of styles a moment ago, I was approaching this area. But style is individual. Method is organizational. When we speak of methods, we are speaking of the difference between those who prefer to work within an institution to change it and those who prefer to work outside, between those who prefer direct confrontational and those who try to win by tact and persuasion, between those who work one-on-one and those who prefer to mount national campaigns. In any situation, we may believe personally that one of these tactics is preferable to others, and we may be convinced that another believer is doing at least some damage by his methods. But perhaps we are too. He may be alienating people unnecessarily, but we may be compromising. We are not to judge the other Christian because he is not our servant. To his own master he stands or falls. We see in Romans 14 verse 4. We also see verse uh, number 5, a variety of places. There are many places where work must be performed. I've been called to Philadelphia and I'm concerned about cities, Philadelphia in particular. I preach on commitment to a particular place so much that I can hardly mention the word place without thinking along the same lines. I believe in a commitment to the great cities of the world so much and I want to a commitment to Philadelphia by many Christian workers so much that I can hardly stand to see a person go somewhere else. I'm sometimes critical, especially when I see a person go to what I consider an easy, pleasant, or affluent area, particularly of it, uh, if it is for what I consider to be wrong motives. But that is not right, of course. People are called to the cities, but they are also called to the country. They are called to the east, but they are also called to the west. They are called to this country and to other countries, to the poor and to the affluent, to working areas and to residential areas, to peaceful areas, and to troubled areas. And it is good they are, for it is the entire world, and not just our own area of concern, that needs the gospel. As we finish our subtopic here, are they with us? Are they with us? So I come back to my original question, and ask of these workers, but are they with us? The answer is that indeed they are, if they are faithful disciples of Jesus. If we serve under the same commander, then we are all in one army. If we march to his drum, we are in the same procession. But since we are asking the question, let us turn it around and ask it for ourselves. Let us not ask, are they with us? Let us rather ask, are we with them? We want them, we want them to back what we are doing, in spirit if not with their actual presence and resources. Do we do that for ourselves who are equally serious? Do we do that for others who are equally serious about wanting to do good for Christ? Let me tell you one thing I do. I'm often interviewed on radio or television and I'm asked about my work. That usually turns to a discussion of Christian work in cities. When this happens, and it often does, I never consciously allow the occasion to pass without commending other Christian workers in Philadelphia, particularly the work of black churches. Their work is not my work. 
the styles are quite different. But generally say, the best work in Philadelphia today is, is being done by the black churches. And I give specifics as to the number of churches, the sizes of their congregations, the variety of their services, and the quality of leadership these churches provide. That is what we, that is what we need to do for all who serve in Christ's name. We may not be able to endorse everything they do, but we should be able to say that that person or that work is authentic work of Christ. And I stand behind it. I am for any good work done for others in Jesus' name. That's the end of our recording. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gracepoint Church Podcast. For more information and for past episodes, please check our website, Grace Point Church.